How is it the last week in July already? Time flies. At least it does here in the Times Union newsroom. July was a big news month this year, and the cycle is showing no signs of the typical August slowdown. We're ready for it. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. And without charges, without someone telling us this, the public would not have known anything about this incident. We'll talk to a Capital Region funeral home providing a unique service inspired by the pandemic. The family surrounds that place of honor, and the visitor on the outside can see, as the camera pans out, can see the whole setting. And we'll look back at the career of a 30-year veteran of Times Union journalism. I get was able to talk to interesting people and, and kind of... Uh, you know, crack open the fissures in my own mind and uh, open up and uh, learn about the world. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened this week in print and online. I am Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union, um, here talking with our Cops and Courts reporter Rob Gavin about one of certainly the most interesting stories of the week, and that is the case of uh, soon-to-be-retired Cohoes police officer, Sean McCown. He uh, is being hustled to retirement, I think it's fair to say, because of an incident that occurred in early June. It involves a number of switchbacks and changes in narrative, but it begins with a late night call from Officer McCown in Essex County in the small community of Elizabethtown. McCown, according to a state police uh, investigation that Rob spoke to several sources about, called 911 and reported a gunfight that had occurred between him and a group of youths, including young black males. When state police arrived at Officer McCown's camp, they found him asleep and in what they described as a potential case of inebriation. When McCown was awakened, he reported to them that he had been returning from a gathering, had encountered a group of youths, including black youths, in the street in front of his house, apparently holding up their phones in an attempt to get cell service. Um, He confronted them three times, the last time um, picking up his service weapon. He, He told the state troopers that evening, and he claimed at the time that one of the youths, a black male, had brandished or shown off a weapon, and then later Officer McCown heard a pop and returned fire in fear for his life. Now, at this point, I will hand this over to Rob Gavin to explain the second story that Officer McCown allegedly offered to state police a little while later. Yeah, thanks, Casey. So there's multiple versions of this story. The first time Mr. McCown is saying that he fired the gun while retreating up a hill, toward a hill near his home on this little road called Lincoln Pond Road. That's the first version of it. When police leave, they get a call back 
from Officer McCown. He calls police back and says, hey, you know, the version of events I gave you contained uh, false information. Here's what actually happened. It wasn't that I was retreating and I fired as I was retreating. And the initial version, he specifically said he saw a young male black lift up his shirt and display a silver handgun. And when he calls back, he says, well, that's not what happened. I was retreating and then I went behind my house. And what happened was then I heard a pop from behind my house and I was worried. And so I fired my gun four times into a tree stump to scare off whoever it was, who this was, which is very different from the first version. Because in the first version, he's saying he's retreating and firing as he's going back and that he had to empty his his bullets and that uh, it's this fear for my life. Oh my God. And this second time it's, I'm behind my house and I'm firing into a tree stump. And then in both cases, this is very key here. In both cases, Mr. McCown says that he ditched the weapon. Now, when state police arrive after the second version is given, they confront Officer McCown and they say, well, at this point, they've looked at a, a neighbor's video of the incident. And they've come to the conclusion that Officer McCown did not ditch his gun, but that he neatly placed it down and just placed it on the ground next to the magazine. And there are differences of opinion. They believe he is clearly drunk. And Officer McCown denies that he was drunk. He denies that things that he had said, according to police, in the 911 call the night before. He's denying those things. And all while acknowledging the first version of the events he gave them is, is not true. And when the troopers uh, confronted him about many of these inconsistencies, his response allegedly was, why are you guys trying to, quote, jam me up? Correct. Uh, they tell Officer McCown that they don't believe the information he's giving them is truthful. And then he says, come on, why are you trying to jam me up? And at some point, he stops speaking to them. There's multiple versions of events here. And what this does is it leads state police. They inform the city of Cohoes about this incident within 24 hours. And at no point is Officer McCown suspended. Now, just so we're, we're aware, two years ago, Officer McCown had a DWI or driving under the influence arrest in Illinois, and that was pled down to a reckless driving charge. And he was suspended in that case. So now, in this case, this is yet another incident. So the mayor, uh, Mayor Bill Keeler, who was a first-year mayor, and his past is that he was a state police officer more than 30 years. He told me that you know, they had options. There's two different routes they could have gone. They could have suspended him. And in that case, there could have been arbitration and hearings. And it's possible that Mr. McCown could have eventually emerged and won uh, his job back. Or they could just have him retire, which is what he, he put in his, his, his retirement papers. But there was no discipline. There's no suspension. Officer McCown essentially gets to retire uh, in less than two weeks. And then he will be off the Cohoes police force. And essentially, that's that. That's that. But as you note, this incident happened in early June. It is only because of your reporting that this case is coming to light. So as Chris Churchill noted in his column, while uh, it is good that Mayor Keeler is taking action that will result in this officer being off the force, if in fact you believe that the officer did something wrong, which clearly the mayor does, 
But as Chris Churchill pointed out in his column uh, that appeared in the paper on Thursday, it also means that were it not for your reporting, Officer McCown would essentially have a clean record. So he could go on to work for another uh, law enforcement entity, uh, as many uh, officers that have had disciplinary trouble in the past have gone on to do with essentially a, a clean record, which is which is a little bit problematic, correct? Yeah, there, there's really no way that people would have known. It was not easy to find out this particular bit of information, even in dealing with the agencies that handled this, calling the state police, they did not comment on this. The district attorney's office up there, that's Christy Sprague, who's the DA up there, her office did not comment on this. She hasn't returned phone calls since I initially reached out to her. Uh, this is not something that anybody up there is telling anyone about. So we would not have known about it. I think it's definitely fair to say that the mayor made it clear that if he thought these allegations were true, he said that would be conduct unbecoming uh, a police officer. But there's also, just to be clear, you know, there was a criminal investigation by the state police, uh, which has since concluded. And, you know, there were potential charges that uh, Officer McCown could have faced, including uh, menacing, as well as potential for uh, giving a false statement to police. So those those are charges that are, at this point, certainly not going to be brought based on what the state police has uh, told us. And without charges, without someone telling us this, the public would not have known anything about this incident. Yeah, and um, just to note, the Essex County District Attorney um, declined uh, to make comment on this. Rob, I really appreciate the good reporting you're digging on this, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. No, thank you so much. Happy to do it. You probably hit the drive-thru every now and again for coffee, lunch, or the ATM, right? But would you use the drive-thru for a wake? Funeral homes in New York have been considered essential businesses since the pandemic began. They've been open and operating, but many have restricted services to immediate family only. While that may meet safety standards for preventing the spread of COVID-19, it doesn't really do much to help the grieving process. So a funeral home in Boston Lake came up with a unique idea to try to fix that. Reporter Rick Carlin recently spoke with the owners of that home about it. Uh, I'm here with Kathleen Sandvidge and Zoltan Prohaska of the uh, Townley and Wheeler Funeral home home in Boston Lake. Right. And you guys have come up to a new uh, sort of touchless approach in these pandemic times for having wakes and, and funeral arrangements at your funeral home. As, as you know, the, the funeral home business is normally about as high touch as any business is, right? People are gathering together to mourn the, the loss of friends and loved ones. They're hugging each other, they're kissing, they're shaking hands, they're standing around, they're waiting in a line to, to greet the bereaved, they're standing around pictures of the bereaved, around the coffin in some cases, and so forth. It's, it, you know, it's very high touch. People come in close contact. They're constantly talking. This is obviously a problem in the COVID-19 pandemic. You couldn't do that, so you have come up with, with a solution for that. Can you tell us a little bit, bit about what, what this is and how you would describe it? Um, As you said, we were faced with a challenge, and when uh, a few months ago restrictions started coming on, Zoltan and I 
uh, had a meeting and we brainstormed and we thought uh, we better we better find a way to serve our community and to serve them well and give them options and keep them protected. And uh, Zoltan is our inventor. He he came up with the concept and the second he ran it by me, I knew that this was something we had to get on immediately. So uh, the very next day we were ordering, ordering our parts, getting things together in order to uh, accommodate uh, his, his invention. And uh, we put together a carport where people will, you know, would drive underneath and be protected from the wind and sun. Well, you know, it's really not a rocket science. Um, one good thing being uh, an, an immigrant, you know, I just came to this country 20 years ago. I'm Hungarian and the uh, rest of my family is still there, you know, my okay. sister and my parents. And and I used to Skype call them to be in contact. And right, I was like, right. what would be the best idea here? if not some sort of like a Skype call, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter where the other computer is in, in your parking lot or on the other side of the world, you can still make uh, video calls. We just got this fancier version of the, the, the camera and the TV system. So there is one TV outside with the camera mm -hmm. under the carport under the unity station and one TV and the camera inside for the family uh, where they can gather in front of the camera and you know like people call come with cars and you know mm -hmm. they can talk and they can see the family they just can't touch and they can't hug each other unfortunately but you know the idea was is not to postpone the grieving period to mm -hmm. somewhere in november or next year mm -hmm. they will have some sort of closure in this case not you know not like a, a usual way but at least you know they will be able to to express able to, their to, to, express to come their, together and, right, and, right. and meet and, and it's, yeah. it's so it's a touchless wake really a touchless uh yes. wake much, and, yes. and, and, and gathering everything's and all like, set for them when they pull uh -huh. in they don't have right. to push any buttons the monitor is right there and it uh -huh. the camera automatically focuses and pans and zooms in on their car just right. as it does with the family who's inside so right. if they choose their vantage point to be in front of the place of honor where the casket is or where the urn is, the family surrounds that place of honor and the visitor on the outside can see, as the camera pans out, can see the whole setting. And oftentimes mm -hmm. they even comment or compliment, you know, that's a beautiful piece of flowers. I can see that. Oh, right, wow. Right. Tell me about that picture that's there because um, that looks like an old picture. So they mm -hmm. can see the whole setup just as they would if they were visiting in person inside. You mentioned earlier that there, there was initially some trepidation. Uh, and I actually talked to one of the one of your clients the other day. And at first he thought, well, this is, you know, like a bank drive through. And he thought it was yeah. a little nutty. And, and but then he did it. And, and now he said it was it was quite nice. And he's glad that they did it because they were able to they were able to have the activity and they were able to meet and gather with family and friends when they would not have been. People have driven through and just said uh, oftentimes that they think that this is a, a better way. They, they, they feel safer uh -huh. and they think that this is a more effective way because the family who's in the car can communicate with the entire family in the funeral home instead of going through the lineup of 10 family members having the right. same conversation one -on -one. each yeah. time. They yeah. have this one beautiful conversation with the entire family and the family appreciates that even more. Uh, and they, they agree most often that, that this was um, very effective because 
they have shared the experience together and they don't have to compare notes, so to say, after the wake. Say, did you see Aunt Joni as she came through? Did you see Mary Beth? Or, you know, how did that, how your conversation with her go? So it's, it's a very effective way of communicating. And it, I, I try to explain it to people. It's, it's unnaturally natural, if that makes any right, sense. Right. It's something that you would never expect to have, it, but it falls together very well and it feels right. Could you make an MP3 or, or streaming video out of it so people could relive it if, if they wanted to? I, I just, just our, wondering. Our very first yeah. time, we had um, one way of doing this, and Zoltan can speak on other ways, uh -huh. but our very first time, the family asked us to Facebook Live the whole well, situation. Right. So uh -huh. in the background, we were Facebook Living what was going mm -hmm. on on the inside. Okay. But okay. the answer to that is yes. If the family wants, uh, you know, a forever keepsake uh, of a recording of their visits, yes, we can do that. This um, obviously, we're all hoping that this pandemic passes and that things get back to normal wh mm -hmm. whenever. Mm -hmm. Do you think this might remain in place after that time? Definitely. Well, okay. So Definitely. there, there seems to be some d demand and interest in this even beyond the, the pandemic when, when it becomes history? Most definitely. Technology yeah. is our partner, and mm -hmm. um, I, I'm sure that you've heard it several times. Through, through this tragic time, through this pandemic, a lot of interesting new and good things have evolved. And this was one, one thing that we were forced to, to do, forced mm -hmm. to uh, to, to figure out. And right. uh, in, in effect, it, it became something that we, we definitely see going on in the future, even if, it, even if it's not uh, necessary because of uh, pandemic reasons. Right. There, there are many okay. benefits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's a fascinating, it's one of the many solutions that people are coming up with. A lot of them are, are business people who have to come up with these solutions and they're, they're coming up with solutions to, to deal with the pandemic and to remain viable and an important part of people's lives. And this is something that you guys devised and, and you're doing it. So yes, it's, it's, it's interesting and, and it's probably changing the way we live from, from here on, even after the pandemic it ends. Most definitely yeah. is. And uh, we see it as an, an extended uh, service that, that hopefully many, many will catch on to and provide. After the break, a 30-year veteran of the Times Union recalls some of her favorite memories on the job. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Entertainment editor Amy Biancoli started writing for the Times Union in the early 90s. She's worn many hats during her stint. She's been a features writer, an arts reporter, a film critic. She's interviewed countless celebrities, written thousands of stories. Her time with the paper as a full-time staffer is coming to an end, so I reached out to chat with her about her favorite memories. Let's start at the beginning. So you've been working at the Times Union in some capacity for almost 30 years. Is that right? Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you do the math. It's, um... <laughs> okay, so in 1991, I moved to Albany 
uh, after marrying my late husband, who was then a reporter at the Times Union. And I started off freelancing very regularly for the art section. And I did that for quite a while, wound up going on staff in uh, 92. And then was there until, let me see, um, 2000. I didn't go back after my my third was born and uh, wound up freelancing and then going on staff as a film critic for Houston. Because in, in my first stint at the Times Union, I started out as a local arts writer and then morphed into a film critic. So then I spent several years doing that in Houston, for not in Houston, for Houston, I should say. I never left Albany. And I had a real great time doing that and then got laid off in late 2012 and miraculously bounced back into my old beat at the TU. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I'm, if you count my time writing for Houston, because those, since that's a Hearst paper, when I went on staff there, uh, the TU started running my reviews. So I guess my scribblings. You kind of never really stopped, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, I guess not. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. And your body of work must be massive at this point. You know, looking back at it, what stands out to you? Were there, were there particular articles or, or uh, topics that you covered that were just really memorable for you? Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, I've been so lucky. I've always said that I just have, I mean, in every iteration of my, my beat, whether I'm doing local arts or, or, um, or movies, I always felt so lucky because the way I always frame it, and I've, I've said this over and over, but I get paid to learn. I mean, I think that's the beauty of journalism generally. And I, I on the arts beat, and then as a film critic, I was paid to, I still paid to learn, even as a, as a film critic, even though I was mostly just seeing movies with some features as well. But I get was able to talk to interesting people and, and kind of, uh, you know, crack open the fissures in my own mind and uh, open up and uh, learn about the world. And I, I think in my beat with the TU, I've been able to interview so many, gosh, interesting people, some of them quite prominent nationally, internationally, some of them, you know, obviously we've got amazing artists around here, but um, Gregory Peck, that was a dream come true, interviewing Gregory Peck over the phone. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was the 90s. That was my first stint in Albany. And he was coming through doing um, like Q&A, meet Gregory Peck kind of, or an evening with Gregory Peck. He was in Paris and I interviewed him for at least an hour. He was on the horn there. And that was, that was, yeah. Wow. Usually you get, you know, with celebrities of that caliber, you'd be lucky if you got 10 minutes, right? That's amazing. You got a whole hour with him? Yeah, exactly. As a celebrity of that caliber, you're right. 10, 15 minutes tops. And I'd done a lot of those too. Like I interviewed Russell Crowe. I forgot the name. Well, when he played that film about the whistleblower. But but yeah, I, and that, I don't, <laughs> I think we just started talking and we kind of, it, it, it became a conversation, which is, I always felt like the best interviews always became conversations. And, you know, the same was true of more recently, um, Pete Seeger. Like uh, I interviewed him, gosh, less than a year before he died. Um, he was coming through Proctor's and that's, that's where Gregory Peck was going to be Proctor's. And it's the same. He was just, uh, he told one story after another. He was just so Pete Seeger. It was really wonderful and inspiring. And also recently I was able to um, moderate 
an evening over at Proctor's with William Shatner. And that was also, <laughs> that was also a dream come true. Oh my goodness. You, you're hitting all the grades here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, they're just people and some of them are, some of them are really tired of, um, or not tired of doing interviews, but they, they've done so many that the challenge is always asking a question that maybe they haven't heard a million times. And, um, and if you can get them going, and if you can ask a question in a way that kind of sparks some interest in them, that's always great. That's always a moment. And if you can turn it into a conversation, then it becomes a, a human interaction and certainly a better story. Wow. So these days now, you know, before in, in the last couple of days, weeks before you leave, what are you working on? I have a few irons on the fire of stories I'll be writing. Your work here is not done yet. You still have a couple of more days. But actually, I do want to ask you about one story that you, uh, it's more of a column that you wrote recently about the Schuyler statue. I found that really profound. And I was hoping that you would just sort of talk about what went into to writing that. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> you know, we're all wrestling with this right now. I mean, I think every single one of us, wherever we stand and whatever our thoughts, we're all, we're all wrestling with history. And I, you know, obviously everybody's got an opinion on the Schuyler statue and we've had a lot in the Times Union about it, but a piece of it is the fact that, well, we've got the Schuyler mansion. And I knew from a series of stories that I had done a couple years ago on the history of slavery around here and in New York State, I knew that not just the Schuyler Mansion, but other historic sites around here take that very seriously in telling the story of slavery. It's part of their role. It's an educational role. It's a role that engages the public and asks people to think in larger terms about history. Because it's not that the, the history wasn't there, it's just how it was taught. and how we grappled with it, I think, has changed in, in light of not just Black Lives Matter, but just over the last several years. I mean, the last there's been a push toward this for a long time, obviously. I'm stating the obvious here. But, but with that, with the Schuyler statue, I did speak with um, this gentleman with the, the parks in the Historic Preservation Department who spoke to exactly what the mansion has been doing and will continue to do because for a long time now, they've drawn out the stories of different slaves who, um, or enslaved people, I should say, because the language, the language these days emphasizes not their status as slaves because that reduces them, but the fact that they were enslaved. So the enslaved people, the people who were enslaved by Philip Schuyler, who is, of course, this giant in not just Albany history, but American history, as any fan of Hamilton can tell you, that he, yeah, I mean, it's been known for a long time that, that he, he enslaved people, that he had people, enslaved people in his, not just his household in Albany, but his estate up in Saratoga County. And, and so, okay, City Hall is going to be getting rid of the statue. Um, people are upset. They say it's, destroying history. It's like, well, no, because history has always been, always been bigger than how we comprehend it and the narrative, the, the narrative that we tell, which tends to be narrow. And, and we're at this point in time when many voices in the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, just in general are saying, no, we have to widen our lens on history. We have to, we have to own it and, and we, have to, we have to acknowledge it. And my feeling about Schuyler 
is that, oh, okay, yeah, we have this ancient city here. We have, depending on how you count, either one of the oldest cities in North, in North America um, or the oldest city in the United States. I mean, it's, it's like depending on whether you count from um, uh, when it was settled or when it was chartered. It's, it's ancient. <laughs> by, by North American standards, it's, it's really, really old. So, of course, slavery is a part of our history. And, of, of course, these big names in our history so many of them enslaved people. And the fact that we're grappling with that now, finally, in a new way, just to me, it just says, okay, this guy has been a piece of our history for 250 whatever odd years. Uh, yeah, let's just do our best to understand it and put it in context and learn. And um, I know it's hard because for a lot of people, because they say, well, uh, you know, but he did this, he did that, he accomplished so much. And at the end of his life, he, uh, you know, he was more committed to manumission and, and it's like, good. But the fact of the matter is, <laughs> he also, for a huge portion of time, he enslaved people. So let's talk about that. And let's talk about what it meant. And let's talk about the lives of the enslaved people and what it meant to them, what their lives were to the extent that we can tell those stories, you know. Indeed. Well, it was a very thoughtful and profound column. And for those listening, you can read it on timesunion.com. I've always said I love my colleagues. I, I love my beat. I love the opportunity, as I was saying earlier, to just meet people and talk to people and learn. And uh, no, I've been really, really lucky just to engage with people and tell their stories and that we are so <laughs> we are so lucky we have such a rich and diverse art scene around here it's, i don't think it's anything to be taken for granted because it's just, for the size of the region we're really really lucky and uh i was lucky to cover it that's wonderful. Well, we will miss you. You're leaving a big void, but I know that you're not leaving the area and you'll still be around. I will indeed. I'm still going to be in Smalbany. I love it. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And happy August!